Right, well, let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me and your Bibles to the book of Acts and uh, chapter number 4. Acts chapter uh, number 4. As you're turning there, we've uh, seen a lot of wonderful things that have happened since Romans chapter number 1. And all of those things are certainly uh, remarkable things because we are interested, as I've uh, repeated throughout uh, this series in the book of Acts, that we need to be, we should be, we are interested in first century Christianity. Or what we're looking for is authentic Christianity. Uh, is that what you want? I hope that's what we all want as a church. And uh, the pattern for the church and how the church is to behave and what the church is supposed to do is not found in our uh, modern books. I hope that if someone would say, hey, what is the church about? I hope that if we did not know the answer, we would say, well, let's read the book of Acts. And let's see what the church was all about. And what we read in those pages is a historical record of the first century church and how the believers in the first century understood the commands of Jesus Christ, understood the Great Commission, and how they did that and carried that out uh, through the first century. And so here in Acts chapter number 4, I want to begin reading, if you would, where we left off and go into chapter 5. And so I want to begin reading, if you would, back in verse number 32 of chapter 4, and then we're going to read on into chapter 5 to give us a context before we come to chapter 5. The Bible says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but... They had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph who by the apostles were surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wonderful. I think so far from chapter 1 through chapter, five, through chapter 4, we see the wonders and the works of the church. And we're encouraged, we're challenged, are we not? But then chapter 5 comes. And I would say, I would entitle chapter 5, Trouble in the Church. What happens? Verse 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. But, now sometimes when you read the Bible, there's buts that are positive. Some, however, are negative. This one is a negative one. Things were going well, but, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Remember, that's what the church was doing, chapter 4. And kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? 
And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came upon all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in, and Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carried her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. You know, we come to this chapter, and I think that the tendency would be for us to say, well, let's overlook that. Let's kind of pass on the other side, because if you read the other side, great things were happening. And notice right immediately verse 12, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. But we cannot overlook what happened in the church. And so I want to preach this morning, and this is really, I've, I've never preached a message like this, particularly on Valentine's Day. <laughs> what, a, what a passage, right? I hope that you who have wives will take care of your wife today. I'm not going to tell you to do that. I assume you're going to do that. But I want to preach on trouble in the church. And really, this is going to be an introduction to the actual study of the text. Because as we look to this chapter, as I, I said, when we read chapter number 1 and all the things that happened, remember, in chapter number 1, the Lord Jesus Christ leaves his disciples with a command to wait for the promise of the Holy Ghost to come. And he gives them a command that they are to fulfill, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, beginning at Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And they were supposed to wait, and they did that. You find them, remember in chapter number 1, they were of one mind, of one accord. They prayed, they opened the scriptures, they replaced Judas and his apostleship and gave it, gave it to Matthias, and things are going well. And then chapter number 2, the day of Pentecost comes, and the power of God comes down, and all of the believers that were in the upper room were filled with the Holy Ghost. And what were they preaching? They were speaking the wonderful works of God. And then on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he preached and he confronted the people that they had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminded them of who Jesus was and what he did. And he told them that this was in the, uh, it was, this was pre, in the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. God had ordained Jesus Christ to die and to pay for their sin debt. And thousands of people were standing there on that day. They were convicted. They were pricked to the heart. And they came to Peter and they said, what do we need to do? And Peter said, repent. And they did. They received the word. They were baptized. They were added unto the church. So here now you have present in the church by the end of chapter number 2, thousands of people who are part of the church who previously had shouted, crucified Jesus. 
And now these same people are believers. They are sitting at the apostles' feet and they are continuing daily learning the word of the Lord, learning from the apostles the things that Jesus Christ had taught them. They were passing on now to those believers. And we read on to chapter number 2 and we see that Peter and John go to the beautiful gate. They see a lame man and uh, the man was asking alms. He was asking for money as he had been for every day. And Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. And he, uh, uh, the man was healed by the name of Jesus Christ. And the layman stands up. He goes into the temple. He has uh, 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 grabs a hold of Peter and John. And he is leaping. He is praising God. And the crowd throngs around them. And what does Peter always do? He preaches Jesus Christ as he did on the day of Pentecost. He repeats that in chapter number 3. And what happens in chapter number 4 is you have what we, I would refer to as oppositions from without the church. The religious leaders of the day, the political leaders of the day, uh, they wanted to stop the spread of the preaching and the teaching of Jesus Christ. And we looked at that first persecution that is ever recorded, and we see some things that we can learn as the church about the world and how the world deals with the church. And we could say that the world is the enemy of the church from without. And we know that when they were threatened not to teach and to preach in the name of Jesus Christ, what did the church automatically do? What was their initial response? They prayed. And they prayed not for their trouble to be removed. They did not pray for the persecution to cease. They prayed that God would give them boldness to preach the word. And what happens right after that? They preach the word with boldness. The church is described as being assembled, as being of one heart, as having all things common. They, had all, they were surrendered and were so excited by the end of chapter number 3, we see that people were, were selling their possessions because some of those believers who were, by the way, Jews, that's where the gospel was first preached to. It was preached to the Jews in Jerusalem. Many of them would be, if you would, shunned by their family members for becoming Christians. Many of them, uh, upon the public uh, baptism and confession of their faith, uh, we see that they would, uh, they would uh, receive the, the hatred of their own family members. Many of them would lose their houses and their jobs because of their conversion. And so the church comes together in this wonderful act of kindness. And many of them said, hey, I have a piece of property over here. I'm going to sell it and I'm going to bring it and provide for those. And the Bible says that everybody had all their needs taken care of. Barnabas, who was a Levite, even sold a possession. And the Bible uh, points him out particularly. Uh, and I believe for a reason we'll see him later uh, in uh, Acts chapter number uh, 9, and tw- 11, and 12. Uh, but we see here in this chapter, we end with a, with a wonderful spirit in the church. They were of one heart. But there's a but. There is trouble in the church. And what I would like to do this morning is to preach an introductory message. As we consider chapter 5. I want to give you... I think it's five truths to consider before we study this chapter. And I'm just going to deal with the introduction or else we're going to be here for a couple hours. All right? First of all, I want us to see that this account of the church is indisputable. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is often when people come to the Word of God, they tend to either water it down or discount it. 
And I say that because often Bible teachers and preachers do that. Where they'll say something like that. There's always those who would speak to discount any biblical record uh, or try to reason with certain records, human reasoning. Some say that, well, this didn't really happen in the church. Others, in their more subtle ways, will declare that Ananias and Sapphira were so in shock that they fainted or that they had a heart attack and that they just kind of fell over and they died. And I say to us, that is not what happened. This account that we read here in Acts chapter number 5, God gives us this account because He wants us to have it today in the 21st century. He wants us to see what happened in the church Nearly 2,000 years ago, he wants us to see that uh, what happened here is indisputable and that this really happened. I believe as we come to the description of what we see happening to Ananias and Sapphira, remember what Ananias and Sapphira had done. Ananias and Sapphira, in their heart, they had conspired to do this. To act like all the other believers were acting but yet not to do what all the other believers did. Remember, at some point in chapter number 4, the Bible says they had all things common, and when they were talking about their own possessions, according to verse number 32, the Bible says, neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own. They all acknowledged all of their possessions were, I believe, surrendered to God. They didn't think that, hey, this is my property. They said, this is God's property. And that's how they viewed those things. And so we could say that there's a great stirring going on in the church, and there's a great revival. And I believe that Ananias and Sapphira both were part of that initial being of one heart. They were united with the church. There was an excitement about the things of God, and the work of God was moving forward. And uh, uh, the Bible points out to us, it pulls out a name for us, Joes, who is surnamed Barnabas. The apostles gave him another name. They uh, named him Barnabas, and we see that Barnabas is singled out, if you would, for what he did in selling his piece of property and brought the money at the apostles' feet. And right then, we end with that, and right after that, we are introduced to two individuals by the name of Ananias and Sapphira who attempted to do the same thing that Barnabas did. But they didn't do the same thing. In other words, when we read this record, we find that there's two people who I believe are believers, who have been part of the church, who were of one heart, of one accord, but somewhere along the line, when they saw Joes bring the money to the apostles' feet, somewhere in their hearts and their minds, they thought to themselves, we could look just like him. We could... Be praised. We could be acknowledged. You see, we can bring something just like Joe's did to the apostles' feet and and everybody would see what we've done. We know, according to the passage, that both Ananias and Sapphira conspired together. They were both privy to it. In other words, they organized. They spoke with one another. Understand, when we come to the scene, it's it's not an oops. Oh, we forgot some money at the house. They purposely pretended that all of the money that they were bringing was the entire uh, uh, amount for which they sold their property for, and they were pretending that that was all the money, but the Bible tells us they kept back part of it. And what happened is, 
Ananias comes in first, the Bible says, and when Peter confronts him, and we'll study that next week, when Peter confronts him, uh, he says, Why uh, hast thou uh, conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And, and I believe that God took him out. Now, now, I know here we're in the 21st century. He says, oh, pastor, you shouldn't be saying that. No, I'm going to say that because I believe that's what the Bible tells us. And I believe that God, at the beginning, when the first century church, the first believers, the first church that ever lived, I believe God gives us the story for our benefit. Because the church is not a joke. Church is not a game. Because this is the church of the living God. And God's not going to let, in the midst of a great work going on, allow two individuals who are believers to ruin what's going on. It is a warning. Now how do I know that God took him out? Because later when Sapphira comes, Peter says, now the Bible says Ananias, he failed, but the, later when Sapphira comes, the Bible says in verse number 9, Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which, are, which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet. You see, Peter knew. Now, I don't believe that Peter did that. I believe God did that. And I believe in that sense Peter was a prophet because he knew what God would do with Ananias and Sapphira. And so we see here this was not an accident. This was not a heart attack. I believe that God took both of those individuals out. You say, well, is there any other precedence for that in the Scripture? There actually is. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, we know the church at Corinth is if you would, known as a carnal church. It's funny, every time I hear, that, and there are churches like that. There are churches that are called Corinth Baptist Church. They're not in a Corinth. They're like in, you know, Mesquite, Texas, and it's Corinth Baptist Church. I'm not saying I know a church like that. I'm just saying there are Corinth Baptist Church. I'm thinking, why would you call your church Corinth Baptist Church? That was like the carnal church. And the church at Corinth is called... By all accounts, as we read through the pages, as the Apostle Paul told the believers, ye are carnal. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, the Apostle Paul sets in order the Lord's Supper because they were partaking of the Lord's table unworthily. And notice what happens if you go with me to verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 11. The Bible says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Now, the word sleep is a, uh, an expression that is attached to believers who die uh, before the Lord comes and returns, and before there is, if you would, the resurrection of the body. And so that describes the state where the believer has died in this world, and he's referring to as sleeping. And so because they were partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy way, the Bible says that many of them were sickly, and some of many sleep. Verse 31, For if ye would judge ourselves, ye should not be judged. But when ye, we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, ye, uh, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. So we see in this passage, he says, look, this is the judgment of God. 
you've met together and what was going on? They were partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy way. There was division in the church at Corinth. The rich over here were hanging out together and the poor over here didn't have anything to eat. And then they were actually feasting, having a feast, and they were calling it the Lord's Supper. Paul sets the record straight and says, have you noticed those who are sick in the church? Have you noticed those who have died prematurely or suddenly? And Paul says, I'm telling you, it is the judgment of God. It is not anything foreign. We understand that the chastening of the Lord is a Bible doctrine. That the believer who lives in continual sin away from God will be chastened of the Lord. We see that in the book of Hebrews and our other accounts, but I want to say that first of all, because as we come to Acts chapter 5, everything is going, is going great. When we come to Acts 5, we don't ignore it. We don't pass over it. We say this account of the church is indisputable. It really happened. Do you believe that? When we read the Bible, we must not look at the Bible and say, well, you know, that's, a, that's a little story you know, to kind of scare people. No, no, no. It really happened. The second thing I want us to note about Acts chapter 5, not only is this account of the church indisputable, number two, this account of the church is impartial. You see, this account shines a light into the first century church. The New Testament believers, we, we see later, they turned the world upside down. The gospel was preached everywhere. People were being saved. Wonderful things were happening. Great things happened throughout the pages of the book of Acts. And God tells us not just the good, He also tells us the bad. That's the wonderful thing about the Bible. When you read uh, the stories of men, you understand it's not the typical biography in the 21st century when someone has an autobiography and they write all the wonderful things about them and leave out of the bad things. Well, God is not that way. And God tells us exactly uh, what happened in the church during a great time of revival. You see, because the account of the church here is impartial. And I believe that helps us because when we want to be a first century church, God just not says, hey, look, all those wonderful things. But God also tells us, hey, look, come over here. See, there was also some believers that got in the way of the work of God. There are also some carnal believers in the church. You know, so sometimes if we're not careful, we may tend to think, and that's a dangerous thought, that we come to a church and we say, oh, wow, I found the church, and it's great. It's perfect. People are wonderful. The preaching is good, and the people are friendly. And, uh, but it's not a perfect church. We read the account of Acts, and I'm thinking, there it is, the first century church. Let's look at it. And God says, yeah, let's, let's look at it in all of its parts. Not just the good, but also the bad. And the truth is, it helps us to realize, as we think about a church and as we examine ourselves, see whether we are authentic Christians, as we see in the first century church, concerning the work of God, we have to get to the place where we ask ourselves, am I impartial with myself? Do I think that just because I'm part of the church, I can do no wrong? Do I think because I'm part of a church that preaches the word of God and witnesses and is involved in the work of God that there can be no wrong in the church? You're wrong. 
This account of the church is indisputable. This account of the church is impartial. But also, thirdly, this account of the church is important. You see, this account being recorded for us to have, to read, to study, to meditate upon, certainly testifies to its significance to our Lord. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts as a historical record under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, God saw fit to give us this record. And I believe because it is an important record. You know, we, we want to get all the positive. We want to get all the things that kind of lift us up. We want to get all the things that kind of you know, challenge us to do greater things. But I believe God also gives us accounts to get us to the place where we are convicted where we are. You know, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, concerning the Old Testament, Paul wrote and he said, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. All that we find reading in the, written in the Bible is for our learning. And so when we come to Acts chapter number 5, we have to come ready to learn. God, what is it that you're trying to te- tell us? What is it? We want to be a first century church. God, what is it that you want to tell us? with this account in Acts chapter number 5. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we know the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Acts chapter 1, is just, or Acts chapter 5, is just as inspired as Acts chapter number 1. And it is given, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So we see this account is, of the church is indisputable, is an impartial, is important. And number four, this account of the church is indispensable. And the reason why I say it is indispensable is because connecting to the fact that this is impartial, God is not just doesn't hide and shove under the rug all the bad things that happened in the first century church. He sheds light upon it. And so therefore, this record is indispensable. Now remember, at the onset of Acts chapter number 4, we find the enemy of the church from without. And we see recorded for us the first persecution ever recorded in human history of the church. And we learn some things from that first persecution. This account, however, in Acts chapter number 5, reveals the enemy of the church from within. There's two enemies to the church today. There is certainly the enemy from without, uh, the world that seeks to silence the church, to silence the truth, to silence the preaching and the teaching of Jesus Christ, but there also is trouble in the church that we must be aware of. And so therefore this account is indispensable. You see, there is a constant fight going on. The work of God is advancing in this world We must be part of it. We know what that work is, and we know that that will always be opposed by the world. But at the same time, we cannot allow the trouble that we find in the world against the church to distract us or to try to nullify the trouble within the church. Names are mentioned here. I think it speaks to, you know, God. the the Spirit of God was not general. Well, there was a couple, and this is what they did. No, no, no. We know their names. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the Spirit of God pinpoint two individuals in the midst of a great revival, two 
individuals that at some point, their heart, remember Acts 4? They, their hearts was with one accord. Acts chapter 5. What have you done in your heart? What happened to your heart, Ananias? What happened to your heart, Sapphira? What happened to this one accord being on the same page, being together? Your heart has gone astray. You say, what is the enemy from within the church? I'll tell you what it is. It is the heart. You know, Solomon, in all of his glory, he uh, we could say as far as the power and the influence of the nation of Israel, it reached its zenith during the reign of Solomon. Uh, around the world, people would come just to see what was in Israel and to hear the teaching of Solomon and the Proverbs of Solomon. And the Bible says we know that his heart came as a child of the Lord in the beginning of his reign. But somewhere along the line, the Bible tells us that Solomon's heart was turned. In other words, he was doing great things for God. He was influencing the world in his prayer to dedicate the temple. He prayed that God would use this temple so that his name would be proclaimed throughout the world. Somewhere along the line, his heart began to go astray. There is certainly the enemy from without, but there is also the enemy from within, and that's why this account is indispensable. You see, because we can often think in our own minds that we can do no wrong because the world persecutes us. We can do no wrong because we are the people of truth. We are part of the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, and so we can do no wrong. That is false. You can do a lot of wrong. I can do a lot of wrong. There's one more thing we see, and that is this account not only is indisputable, is impartial, is important, it is indispensable, but third, fourthly, Fifthly, I don't know which one. The account of the church is impactful. As we read of the impact of this event upon the lives of the New Testament believers, I cannot help but consider the impact this record should have upon us today in the 21st century. I believe that the reason it is recorded for us, you see, there is no reason for this record to be there for the first century church. They knew what happened. They were there. But there is a reason for this record to be here for us in the 21st century because we were not there. The Bible says, notice what happens. The Bible says in verse number 5, And Ananias, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came upon all them that heard these things. If you go down after what happened to... Um, Sapphira, verse 10, Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her, uh, her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the, what? The church. And upon as many as heard these things. You know why we have this account? Because it needs to have an impact on us. Like it did in the first century. Why don't you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. I think about the life of the Apostle Paul. 
Let me ask you a question. What is it that you and I, what is it that you are afraid of the most? Now, there are certainly, you don't have to say it out loud or anything, but there are certainly perhaps a lot of things that we could describe and say, well, this is what I'm really afraid of. And we, we could say sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of losing my children to the world. I'm afraid of that. There's a lot of things we could say we're afraid of. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, if you go with me and let's uh, begin, if you would, reading... In verse number 14, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, the Bible says, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make me my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is, is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do these, this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet... Have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more? And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law, to them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. And I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partakers thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But, verse 27, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You know what was Paul's greatest fear? That he would become a castaway. That he would be thrown out as a piece of trash. That as he was ordained to preach the gospel, that he would do something in his life that would take him away from being able to preach the gospel with the power of God. From being the minister that God had called him to be, from being the believer that God had called him to be. And I believe that as we've come to Acts chapter number 5, and we think about this passage, we have to ask ourselves, I cannot not help but think 
that somewhere along the line, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira can happen to any of us where our heart becomes lifted up with pride and we become to go astray from the Lord and all the things that God had for us in our lives and what He wanted to accomplish and use us to do, that we become castaways. That all the wonderful things that God wanted to do for us. And so what did Paul say? What, what does he do? He says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Why? Because I, I don't want to be a castaway. You see, this account of the church should be impactful to all of us. If we go back to Acts chapter number 5, the Bible tells us, in verse number 11, And great fear came upon all them that heard these things. If you read over to verse number 11, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And the rest, there's no man joined himself to them. But the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitude both of men and women. I'm thinking, do you know what just happened? Acts chapter, do you know what happened in the church? Well, yeah, they all knew. There was great fear among the people. And I'm thinking, what, what do they fear? Now, you, we could say, well, they, they fear that God would stamp them out. No, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that that's what they feared. I think what they feared is that they would not become like Ananias and Sapphira. That they would not put themselves in that position that Ananias and Sapphira put them in. That in their hearts they would not conspire. That they would not lie to the Holy Ghost. That they would not be truthful with God. But they would be pretentious. That they would act a certain way when they come to the church as if they are the Christians that have just dedicated their possessions to God and act like they're right with God, but their heart was far removed from God. And so the Bible says many were added to the church. But the fear was still there. I think that's, that's interesting. There was certainly a fear of God in the church. But do you see what happened? It did not cause people to leave the church. It caused people to come to the church. Where God was feared, people were attracted. Fearful, yep, but attracted. Where God was exalted, where God was reverenced, where God was in the midst and working, that's where the people came to. And so, the Bible says there was fear. Interestingly enough, verse 12, right? Verse chapter, remember chapter 4? They were of one heart, of one accord. Then Ananias and Sapphira, they mess up, trouble in the church. When they're removed, then there's once again one accord. And then, not only that, but believers were added. There was fear, there were one accord, and believers were added. And so we come to chapter 5, and... That was the introduction, okay? You have to come back next week to actually um, get in on two. Let's uh, take this, these verses apart and study those verses and what happened there. But I want us to think here.
as we think about trouble in the church, we considered in chapter number four trouble outside the church, pressure on the church. But this is, if you would, is trouble in the church. My prayer is that I would not be the trouble in the church. Would you make that your prayer? That you would not be the trouble in the church? The church is not a game. The work of God is serious. We're not playing church. We're here because God has brought us together. He's called us to do something for his glory. And it's not time that we play around. And so may the Lord help us to think about the trouble in the church and then to ask ourselves, may I never be the trouble in the church. You know, in the Old Testament, you remember Achan? The whole camp was hindered from gaining victory because of one man. I believe we have to consider the importance of that and the impact that we as individuals say, oh, well, no, I, don't, I don't have any impact in the church. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And my prayer is that we would all see the importance and the value of how we regard the church. And so may the Lord help us.